0: You are listening to CrawlSpace on the CrawlSpace Media Network. If you like this show, you'll love Missing, which is also hosted by us.
1: Missing started as Missing Maura Murray, and now it continues raising awareness for all missing people. And we also have an entire network of shows you'll love. Check them out at crawlspace media.com.
0: Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am fantastic.
1: Just fantastic. How are you today?
0: Uh, Even better than fantastic, Lance, because uh, we have on our airwaves today a real true hero of true crime. His name is David Middleman, and he works with Othram Labs. In fact, he's the CEO of Othram Labs, and you can find out all the amazing work that they do at authorum.com and dnasolves.com.
1: David is uh, sort of a force to be reckoned with. I know we say a lot that we have these true crime superheroes on, but this is the world we live in now. We try to surround ourselves with people like like David and uh, you know all the advocates that we speak with at authorum.com. That's O-T-H-R-A-M.com. You can see what they do. Their website identifies themselves as achieving results even when other Approaches, fail. And that's exactly right. David is able to explain how what they do is different from regular DNA identification in a way where it's fun to listen to. It's not a tedious conversation. He's so passionate about it. And like you said, he is the CEO. He is Othram, but he does manage a group of about 20 people, he says. And when he approaches people, when he's recruiting people to join his team— he essentially asked them, do you, do you want to fight crime? Do you want to be a crime fighter? And I, I just thought that was so cool. And he delivers a little bit of a, a Brianna exclusive in this episode, which we weren't ready for. I think you asked the question, Tim, and he gave the answer. And we were thinking this is not at all what we expected to hear.
0: Yeah, I think we expected um, a complete non-answer, I guess. Um, But he he actually gave an answer uh, pretty almost as much, I think, as he can. So that's in the episode. And if you follow our Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, you may have seen it there. And of course, if you are unaware, he, David and and Othram, they have a sample from Brianna Maitland's car, a sample of DNA that was given to them by the Vermont State Police um, in Brianna Maitland's disappearance in that case.
1: And like with everything we do when we hear news like this, it's always best to proceed with cautious optimism, but... Personally, because I have so much confidence in David and in Othram that I put an emphasis on the optimism part, and you can see that for yourself at dnasolves.com. They have raised funding for several missing person cases, several does, and through their work and through public support, they have been able to solve so many of these cases, and you see Brianna's picture on there, and it says funded. There's a little tag on it that says funded. The next step on that is solved, and you'll see the work. You'll see the results and and he's so confident and that gives me confidence that gives me a little bit more optimism
0: that's right Lance and you can always donate to them as well they have cases that aren't exactly funded yet that do need funding so you can check that out at dnasolves.com so I hope you enjoy this conversation with David thank you very much for listening and don't forget to check out our series on the disappearance of Phoenix Colden that is on our other podcast called Missing and real quick, be sure to tune into
1: our Get Vocal on Thursday night of this week. We will be speaking with none other than the legend of true crime, Mike Morford, from every single podcast that is not a podcast hosted by Tim and myself. So he will be joining us, getvocal.com, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Check it out. It'll be a fun conversation. He's been out of the Get Vocal world for a little bit, but uh, he was moving, so we'll talk to him about that and about cases and about Bigfoot and about uh, him swimming in his pool.
0: David Middleman of Othram Labs, welcome back to the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thanks
1: for
2: having me.
0: Well, it's
1: wonderful to speak with you again. We we had um a bit of a conversation during one of our True Crime Thursday Get Vocal Nights with Bruce Maitland. Uh, you were on there because you had a bit of an update in regards to his daughter's disappearance, Brianna Maitland's disappearance. But you have this amazing company, Othram, uh, that works with uh, DNA and, and genealogy and, and things about science that I pretend to know about, but I don't. Um, and you're super busy. So thank you for taking time to talk to us. Introduce yourself.
2: So uh, I'm David Middleman. I'm the CEO of Authorm, And uh, Authorm and is, uh, well, just a, a bit on myself. I, I've done DNA testing my whole life, um, over 20 years of building technology, and then using DNA testing uh, from every every angle, from research to uh, consumer tests to medical diagnostics, and now now working in forensics. And so um, I I helped start Authram, which is a forensic laboratory. It's the only only laboratory of its kind in the United States. We basically do end-to-end processing of evidence, um, work with evidence that other labs uh, cannot accept or, or for which testing has previously failed and can pull information from this otherwise unusable evidence and uh, use that information to help law enforcement identify victims or, uh, or perpetrators to crimes. It's the only lab in the U.S. that does this completely end-to-end in-house, evidence-to-answers.
0: Okay, now when you say evidence-to-answers, what, what does that mean exactly? What, what can you do at the start of something, uh, of your process, uh, that that other people wouldn't do or couldn't do?
2: So we, we've worked with a lot of we've worked with a lot of evidence that's failed uh, previous testing, and there could be a couple of reasons that it fails. Sometimes the quantity of DNA is just too small. Um, it, it may not even fail; it just gets rejected. It's not, it's not a candidate for testing for all methods. Um, not all laboratory methods are the same. So we've we've developed methods that allow us to sample um, what scientists would call sub nanogram quantities of DNA. So this is like fractional quantities of DNA that are just below the threshold of suitability for other methods. And and so that's one way that we can help in a case where the evidence has been previously um, inaccessible. Uh, Other ways we could help is when we work with the older materials that are highly degraded. So we do a lot of work with uh, skeletal remains, with uh, older sex assault kits. These these DNAs are both uh, heavily degraded. Uh, the DNA is kind of sheared into itty bitty little pieces, and also they can be contaminated. A lot of the older bones, there's stuff, you know, bacteria and other things have taken growth. And so there's non-human contaminants that um, that can throw off testing or, or make it extremely complex. Um, and then um, and then the other thing that we work on, uh, which is also uh, of, of interest, particularly to sex assault kits, is is the ability to resolve complex mixtures. So, uh, you know, most, most of these kits will have a mixture, but generally when they do what's called a differential extraction, um, they end up with a, with a, with a fraction that is primarily composed of, of, of the perpetrator DNA. And in a lot of cases that's not possible, or, or sometimes you don't have a kit. Sometimes you just have, you know, evidence that remains on a piece of clothing, or, you know, that was found literally on the body of a victim. So the victim's body is obviously mostly victim DNA. And um, and being able to tease apart, especially when the person um, you're looking for is the minority in a mixture, um, being able to tease that apart is complex. And so those are kind of the different ways, you know, mixtures, non-human contaminants, degradation, and low quantity um, that could that could invalidate the use of evidence um, for for some methods. But we're able to get a lot of a lot of mileage. Uh, We you know we we we've, we've taken on we've focused on taking on cases historically that are brought to us that have already failed at least a few other attempts or other methods. And, um, and in that way, we feel like we're trying to apply our technology to cases that need it the most because they've, they've, they've already kind of been uh, given up on. You know, the, the, the results were not the outcome was not what they were looking for. They didn't get information that led to an answer. And so we try to go back and see if we can learn something more to help investigators take that case forward.
1: Okay. That's really fascinating. And you said uh, you gave a list of all of the factors that might um, render the sample unusable that might constitute something that's unusable in most cases, but Othram's able to get use out of it. What do you do that's different? I think you said like you, you sort of tease out certain uh, minorities that are in the sample, but how does that happen? Because I, when you tell me that I'm picturing you would like um, a little monocle and tweezers.
2: Beakers.
0: Yeah.
1: Lots
2: of beakers. I wish I could take credit. I, I'm not in the lab, so the 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 lab folks are the ones that have the monocle and uh, and 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 the tweezers. But uh, you know, we the foundation of what we're doing is is something called DNA sequencing. So we we of course upon that built some proprietary tech and a lot of really great methods that allow us to to push the limits of what you can do with sequencing much further than than you might get from working with a traditional research or medical lab. But um, but. You know the foundation of the technology is sequencing. And so uh, right now, there's a lot of methods that can be used to kind of infer or query um, where you know what things are, you know, what markers exist, where in the DNA. Um, a lot of those methods are, are designed for research use. Um, some of them are like you know, these these SNP microarrays, they're they're used in recreational DNA testing at consumer DNA companies. and um, and you can sometimes get them to work, but when they work, they work in spite of the technology. They're not working because they're facilitating. They're not designed for forensics. And uh, so, so we built upon a foundation of sequencing. Sequencing is really really a, a very powerful technique. It's very sensitive. So, so you don't need a lot of starting material and that's that's in stark contrast, for example, to these SNP microarrays or SNP chips that you may have heard of in the press. When 23andMe or Ancestry or a consumer company sends you uh, a kit and you're going to do a, a SNP chip on that, um, and that's how genetic genealogy kind of has, has, has been uh, operating in the non-forensic capacity. They're, they're sending you a kit that's going to collect, you know, somewhere between 750 to 1,000 nanograms of DNA. So there's gobs of DNA. And you throw it on this chip, and the chip's a really fast way to approximate computing all these markers. In the forensic space, you know, we're talking about like low nanograms. You know, it could be one nanogram. And like I said, a lot of the cases we take are sub-nanograms, so less than a nanogram. They just don't work on these technologies. They're not not intended for that. And and sequencing allows you to work with low nanogram to sub-nanogram ranges. The other thing about sequencing is that it's it's very sensitive uh, in the sense that it can detect lots of different kinds of DNAs, even DNAs that are perhaps damaged, um, degraded to small lengths. You get more mileage. And, um, and the data that comes off is, uh, is digital. So you're getting, you're sequencing molecules and getting, uh, like imagine a, a word file and each line of the word file is a sequence of, of, of letters that DNA letters that correspond to these individual DNA fragments. And so you get all the data and it's not mixed together It's individual lines of information. And that's really the foundation for how you can separate um, really nicely mixtures and, and other kinds of things from a DNA sample. The other technologies, for example, like arrays or even STR testing, you're measuring the DNA in aggregate. And so you have a signal for multiple people's DNA all being kind of mushed together. And there are tools and strategies to try to deconvolute and separate that. But obviously the magic is if you can use sequencing, you can can independently query these DNA fragments and they're not mushed together then the data and the signal is not combined and it makes it in principle easier to separate there's still work to be done but there's just a better starting point now from that starting point there's many ways of course to do sequencing you can do sequencing in a very automated high throughput capacity that's what they do in the medical labs um, the advantage is that it's very cost effective uh, it's very fast but but it consumes a lot of a lot of dna and so if you were to send uh, a forensic case to to a research or a medical lab they may have some success with it. They may not. Still better than using an array, but but you know it's not it's not tuned for forensics. Nor do they follow a forensic process. And for anyone that's listening, that's been in a forensic lab or or has visited one, they're they're wildly different in, in both in how they're structured and how the workflow um, goes. And so what we've done is we've taken, built upon sequencing. We we built essentially vertically integrated every step that you would need from getting DNA from evidence. To to seeing it, so we we have a proprietary way to know almost every time if we're going to get a positive outcome. So we don't charge law enforcement, um, you know, for for actual sequence testing if we don't think we can produce a, a profile um, that would be usable. And we're able to do that because we've we've sampled and we've we've played with enough evidence and we've experienced enough. To where we know that our process will work for this and not that. As much as I, I, I really feel our process is a better way to handle forensic evidence. We can't work every case, and we're obviously not going to have a hundred percent success rate. But being able to know upfront, before you invest a lot of time, money, and more importantly, before you consume evidence, I think I think that's super valuable for um, for protecting a case and and you know conserving budget. And so so we've we've built each step in this process fine-tuned for the kind of uh, DNA and the kind of evidence that we're used to seeing and um, and that works that works to our advantage you know we're, we're not a high throughput uh, necessarily you know 10,000 samples a day kind of thing uh, but what we can do is we we have a process that works really well and um, and maximizes and prioritizes getting good information from evidence the idea is you you know, Pull the information once, right? Test once, and then and then you can continue to get value. Once you've digitized the evidence and it's on the computer and you've pulled the maximum information you can, you don't want to pull a little bit. You want to pull all the information you can. So you're universally compatible with all the tools. You're, you're, you're backwards and kind of future-proof and that you've already collected all the information you can. So two months later, it's like, I wish I had these markers. Well, they're there. They're, everything you can get is already there. and And you have compatibility and kind of this like future-proof kind of property to where you can use that data in ongoing investigations, regardless of the databases change, the tools change. So that's kind of our philosophy is like, go the extra mile on the lab side, go the extra mile on trying to get as much information as you can out. And then, and then trust me, like it makes the investigators' lives a lot easier. Um, and even, even the folks that have to sit there and build, uh, you, know, you know, some of the techniques, as you know, revolve around uh, records, you know, research and family tree building, even if you have to do that kind of stuff, um, you know, those folks will appreciate getting clean data that is not ambiguous, um, not, as they say in the field, uh, matchy, and, um, and enables them to really cleanly see what, what is a, a match and what's not a match. The confidence of knowing that if there should be a relationship, you can detect it. Um, you don't want to detect wrong relationships, but you also don't want to miss relationships. Missing relationships could kill a case. If you're um, if you're blind to a relationship that exists is in the database, but you don't see it because your data is too noisy, so all those things are considerations. It's down the rabbit hole of uh, you know of, of of all this performance testing and things that we do. But but at a very high level and just kind of like in layman's terms, we go the extra mile to do as much as we can on the front end. We want to accept as much evidence as possible. We don't want to leave evidence behind if we don't have to, and then we want to you know in a, in a very kind of careful and conservative way pull as much useful information as we can because we just don't know what information will be necessary down the line and 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 we cannot guarantee unfortunately in forensics that you get a bunch of chances to test even if you have the money to do it um, you you may not have the evidence It, it is it is not uncommon to consume evidence sometimes all of it in the course of testing so anything you can do to to minimize the chance that you get no outcome Uh, or that you lose information is important.
1: I have a question. I don't know if it even makes a difference, but, um, and I'm just learning about these things, mostly because I'm figuring, uh, I've been following um, the distribution uh, and administration of of the COVID vaccine, and the difference between DNA and RNA, and is there any, uh, do you ever pull RNA? Does that deliver more accurate information, or, or is that just more of an unstable, is that just more of an unstable process?
2: I mean, RNA is definitely a less stable molecule. It's a single strand instead of the two strands of DNA. It's a good question. RNA, RNA is an intermediary. intermediary. The, the mRNA that you're probably talking about, that is uh, it's, it's derived from the DNA. The DNA encodes information that is then, um, as I say, transcribed into a message. And that message is that mRNA that's floating around. And, and that message is used to instruct the cell to do something. You know, build me a protein, do this, do that. And so... Um, So, so when we're looking for markers, there's, there's two things to note. The first thing is the DNA is the permanent record, right? So it's, it's not the, it's not the mess. It's the original source of the message. It's also stable. And and the other thing is that um, the DNA contains a lot more than the information contained in the message, a very, very small amount of your DNA actually encodes for these message molecules. A lot of the DNA is just there. Some of that DNA has been sitting there for for generations. And in fact, it is the DNA that is outside your genes that is not necessarily transcribed into a message. That's the DNA that's been kind of sitting there. And as I say, like in a neutral way, um, neutral meaning that there's not like a selective pressure for it to go one way or the other in terms of what the letters are, has been kind of neutrally sitting and over time accumulating changes. And it's that that knowledge that things over time kind of at a constant rate accumulate changes. is that knowledge that allows us then to relate people. So the best markers in ancestry, for example, or in relationship testing are actually the markers that just kind of change on their own at a constant rate and are outside of the genes and, and are not in the RNA or anywhere else. These are just kind of, in between regions, not in genes, they don't they don't code for medical information um, or, or even generally trade information. They're just changes that are there that are kind of like the ledger of time that that just document how over time things have gotten a little different. And that magnitude of how different they got is what allows us to determine if you're my first cousin, second cousin, or third cousin. So I don't know if that answers your question, but
1: it uh, answers my question and then some. That was great. Thank you. Because I'm sure, I'm sure everyone had that question on the tip of their tongue.
0: <laughs> that was the next thing I was going to ask too, David. When we spoke with you a few months ago, now um, with Bruce Maitland on our live Get Vocal show, we were talking a bit about Brianna Maitland's disappearance and her case. Um, obviously, um, you have some DNA at Othram uh, in that case. Is there is there any update you can share with us? Uh, regarding that before we uh, ask about other cases.
2: Yeah. So, so when we had talked, it was kind of a high level kind of hypothetical discussion. We hadn't actually started any work. So um, what I can tell you is that uh, we did end up moving forward with law enforcement, as you know, Um, we did come in possession of evidence and, um, and then we were able to um, with this evidence, produce a profile and, and start to collect information. And so um, we're we're at the kind of the, the final stages of building that set of markers that, that genetic profile, and um, and what we'll do with that information is then um, work with law enforcement to help see if we can't uh, figure out where that DNA came from. And so um, I don't have a, an update in the way of like, hey, the case is the case is solved. Um, you know, we're, we're we're just now wrapping up the laboratory component, but I can tell you that the laboratory component uh, was successful. And, and what we would have to do now is, is begin this next stage in which we start to collect information about the profile, um, prepare an update for law enforcement, and then and then work with them to to you know you know we, we obviously have to do all of our announcements and updates through um, through the law enforcement kind of channel, um, you know, because at the end of the day we you know, we work for them, but um, but we will, and so we'll, we'll give them an update and. Um, and then and then hopefully as we go in, we'll have kind of check in points where we can give you guys updates. But 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 there was there was, in fact, uh evidence and there was, in fact, evidence from which we were able to access information. So so that's 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 good news. That's incredible.
0: So, OK, so, yeah. So you're saying you've done a big part of your work on this case uh, with the evidence and now you're trying to sort of genealogically. uh find more information on who this could be
2: yeah there'll be there'll be a lot of there'll be a lot of um there'll be a lot of steps in between there but i would say like we've we've accomplished most of the laboratory component so you know the, the the it's hard to know how far along you are in a project until you've already figured out the answer but but i know that from the perspective of collecting information from the evidence we're on the tail end of that and so so i have not had a chance to look uh, in, in great detail at the information coming out other than to know that we got good quality um, genetic information. And so that's, that's certainly, that certainly makes me optimistic, but, um, but I would need to review that. That's, that's the next step is I'll review it. Um, my lab director has to review it. Then, then I look at it. Uh, we'll, we'll have some conversations with law enforcement and plan next steps, you know, following where they want to go in the investigation.
1: Yeah, that's, that's remarkable. Well done on that. Is there, an example that you can use to sort of paint the picture of, of where it's at? Cause I, I know you said where it's at, but is there another case uh, that you can point to and say, you know, when this case was around this point that Brianna's case is around, here's the, you know, here's, here's how, what our next steps were. And here's how we worked with law enforcement.
2: So, so um and give you a couple of examples. Uh, last fall, I think I might've mentioned to you guys, we, uh, we helped. We helped the Fort, Fort Worth Police Department. We took some evidence from a sex assault uh, homicide from 1974. This was the case of Carla Walker, and um, they had some evidence that they had previously tested uh, with a, with a laboratory technique, and it failed. And so, so it was actually, um, you know, already kind of designated as it did not work. And we went back and said we'd like to look at what evidence remains. There was a little bit of a little bit of DNA left. And we took that, and we were able to build a, a profile of information, um, and that's that's the point we're at right now, almost at with uh, this Maitland case. What we ended up doing after that is my uh, lab director and the lab team had started to to pursue genealogical search, um, you know, tree building, looking at uh, records, and they were able to piece together enough information over a period of time that then allowed law enforcement to take that information and, and, and identify someone that was a candidate suspect. And um, you, you guys probably remember how that turned out. They ended up confirming that identity. And uh, I believe he also confessed. He was indicted, I believe, late last year. And uh, I think COVID has, has stalled the court process, but he's in custody at the moment. So that's, that's one example of a case. You know, On dnasolves.com, we have uh, a whole bunch. You can You can filter for cases that are designated as solved. So when, when law enforcement solves a case, if they give us permission, we we post it on there to share uh, with the community. That's DNA-solves.com. And so you can go there and select only solved cases. There's a whole bunch of them like this. But I think the Carla Walker case is a good example. Um, some of the cases we'll do, we'll do everything end to end, as I think we'll be doing in this case of uh, Brianna Maitland's disappearance. Sometimes we do part of the process. So um, we did a project that was just announced uh, just a week ago. Last week, I believe um, the Pecos County Jane, Jane Doe. So this is uh, out in West Texas, and we have a we have a really great relationship with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They have uh, almost 700 unidentified children that need to be identified, and um, and of those, many of those have been tested, and the testing's been unsuccessful. So we've gone back and looked at the ones where the testing was unsuccessful, or just a really old case. And 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 we're just one by one we're knocking them out. And so in this case there was a there was a girl who um, uh, it was a kind of mysterious story. It was 1966. She arrives at this hotel in Pecos, Texas. And uh, I, I went there actually for the press conference. And when I when I pulled in it said Pecos, Texas, uh, home of the first the, I guess the 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 world's first rodeo. I don't know if that's true, but that's that's what I saw there on the sign there. And so um, so she she pulls into this motel with this. Uh, unknown male companion. Um, and uh, and anyways, hours later, she's at the bottom of a pool drowned. he under mysterious circumstances vanishes. and that's it. It's, that's the end of the story and and she ends up getting buried in Pecos. she's the grave is marked unknown drowned girl. and and that was fifty five years ago. and, uh, you know, a lot of work from a lot of groups, but basically, uh, a citizen uh, citizen sleuther identified the case from old newspaper clippings and other other things got it put into namus which i'm sure you guys know is the the government database to catalog these missing or unidentified folks it sparks the interest of nicmec so they come in start researching it start working with the the current and new chief of police uh lisa trango um in, in pecos and anyways this this the 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 story begins to unfold they're collecting facts totally coincidentally around that time i had brought on a new um, case manager his name is michael and, and he actually reached out to them and was like this is this is the kind of case we want to help in it's like a really old case uh, they had exhumed the body to do traditional str testing dna testing using the traditional forensic process no answers did a forensic sketch no one recognizes her it's not a shock it's been 55 years so in 2019 nick mech helped law enforcement exhume the body but dna testing didn't didn't provide any answers and so michael took notice of this case in early 2000 we came in and said let's let's give it a shot you know 55 year old bones are old but i mean we had worked the case and built a profile from bones um, of a woman that died in 1881 so you know, if, if you could do that, you'd think the 1966 bones are accessible. So we took it, built a profile. In this case, that's where we stopped actually. We, we returned the profile back to, uh, to NCMEC. And NCMEC has, one of the cool things about NickMEC is they, they pool the resources of many organizations. And so they were able to, to get some uh, donated genealogy time. They were able to dren- generate identifying information. Long story short, the chief of police ends up with a lead she traces it back to a living relative. Turns out this girl, she, uh, she was a 17-year-old girl that had recently graduated high school working at a drive-in diner in Kansas City, oddly enough, quite far from Pecos, Texas. And, and one day she vanished. Um, I think one of her sisters says there was a gentleman that had expressed unusual interest, but you know, it's, it's just something she saw, no hard facts there. One day she vanishes, doesn't collect her paycheck, nothing, just vanishes and, and next thing you know it she's um she's in the pool so you know as a as chief said kind of more questions than than answers but but she's been identified she her body will be uh, returned to her family in kansas city and um and she will be uh you know she, she'll be re-, re re reconnected to family and she gets her name back so it's so kind of like the minimum that you can do and and i think the chief remains interested in trying to work out the rest of the case so you know I can go on for hours, but but like I said, DNA solves. We have a whole bunch of these kind of stories. And we try to we try to showcase them when we can. I mean, virtually all the work we do will probably never get announced. It's either either tied up in prosecution or, in general, I think law enforcement doesn't necessarily um, share every case that they, that they work. But but when there's an opportunity to do it, I like showcasing a couple things. I like showcasing that the technique works, even when it's a case as old as 1966 or 1881. I like to showcase the teamwork because I think people forget how many different pieces are necessary. And by the way, that's not even counting all the work the law enforcement did just outside of law enforcement, like all the different kinds of pieces that are necessary to line things up to where this case can actually get to a, to an identity. And then the last thing was like the power of the crowd. The, the way this girl got identified was two ways. One is we actually had, um, we had to raise some funding. So we did a little bit of a crowdfund, to 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 raise enough money there was there was money that was contributed by law enforcement but they had also spent uh, quite a bit of money exhuming the body it's a very expensive process and so so we raised some extra money to make sure we had the resources to do all the testing necessary and then and then as you know people people are are constantly uploading their dna data if they've tested with a consumer company and that's great too because you know, there there wasn't like a super close relative that identified her. There's just enough people in the world that have participated, and and through a distant relationship, it was possible to retrace her identity. And and it's magic because uh, it's magic if you think about it. Because you have the family that you know of. It's kind of your social family, your nuclear family, and the and the folks that are slightly extended. But but in a sense, we're all family genetically, anyways. And so so we're all kind of connected to each other. And, and and so any one of us could be uh, unknowingly a distant relative, um, very distant, but but distant uh, to um, someone that is unidentified. And and I think it's I think it's just really great to have folks that have that have you know taken the initiative to share information or to help spread the word about a case or to or to donate um, towards a campaign to help get these cases solved. There's there's hundreds of thousands of these that need to get worked.
1: Yeah, and and you were talking about the relationships and how uh, the group comes together. And you mentioned law enforcement. What what does law enforcement have to have to do to uh, initiate something like this, or don't they? Ha- or is it different in each case?
2: Obviously, law enforcement gets involved at the start of either the discovery of a victim or or the you know the discovery of a crime. So there's there's securing the crime scene, collecting and storing the evidence, um, however recent or long ago that the that the event occurred. Um, you know, we had a we had another case. It was this hiker you, you probably saw all over the news. He was he was nicknamed mostly harmless, right? So there wasn't necessarily a crime there, but he died. And and law enforcement gets in at the very beginning, identifies that someone is deceased, has to secure that scene. Um, you know, docu- there's a lot of documentation to, 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 in, in storage and, and, and proper handling of that evidence that's on the front end. Um, once once they have an idea of what happened, there's a bunch of processes that go through. And by the way. If it's like this Pecos Jane Doe case, it's even more complicated because here there's a lengthy approval process and and financial burden to exhume a body. I mean, you could imagine that's not something that's popular. You don't want to just exhume people willy-nilly, but when there's a compelling reason because it might help lead to the identity of the person or to the solving of a crime, you know, that's a whole process in itself. Once you've got all the evidence, then there are usually state labs. Um, you know, laboratories in the public sector that, that do a lot of work from, um, you know, just the conventional forensic testing, STR testing, to see if there's a match in CODIS. There are support staff either through, um, you know, organizations like NamUs or even through the state directly, or sometimes uh, nonprofits like NCMEC that come in and provide anthropological service, right? They look at the bones and they try to see, can they, can they infer how this person might have died? Um, you know, can they, can they infer anything about the age? um, biological sex, right? What can they learn about the person? Um, and then, and then all that information is compiled. And at some point they've done everything they can do. If there's a fingerprint remaining, they can try to do a fingerprint search. They can try to reconstruct the face, um, using a forensic artist. If they have a, you know, at least some of the skull, everything they can do to kind of scrape as much information from the evidence as possible. And at that point, they either are able to move the case forward or they're not. And, and when they're not able to move it forward, it's at that point that they would engage, for example, Othram. And then what they do is they come to Othram and they say, here's here's the evidence we have. Here's everything we've done so far. Is there something you can do that would, on top of that, add additional information? That's when we get involved. So once once Othram gets involved, there's been a lot of work on law enforcement and a lot of other folks to kind of um, collect, preserve, and, and, and characterize evidence. Once we get in, we take on from that point, if there's, for example, no information gained from a traditional forensic test and we look at the evidence and we ask ourselves, based on our experience, is this evidence that we even wanna accept, right? We don't wanna accept evidence if we can't help. So is this something that like clearly fits within the parameters of something we've done before successfully? If not, we tell them to wait. A lot of these cases better to hold the evidence and wait than to take a risk, you know, technology changes all the time. Don't, don't, don't just rashly run a test on a, on a finite quantity of evidence. If we can accept it then we take it in and then we do this QC process and we even more detailed kind of characterize and and try to understand the properties of of the evidence and if we can accept it and go forward and we have reasonable confidence we'll get a result then we proceed from there and then from there there's a lot of things we can do we work with a lot of uh you know forensic uh, artists to do reconstructions if, if they're not already available or they want an updated reconstruction we'll pull genetic information we can learn a lot about biogeography that hiker case mostly harmless that, that's what ended up being kind of the one of the triggers there is that we were able to figure out that the 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 hiker he was like he was of largely cajun descent we, we were able to identify a large group of relatives from you know this specific parish in louisiana and we announced that on december 9th and started running targeted ads we were basically running facebook ads um the journalist uh, nick thompson who wrote the wired article he was doing the same we were running ads in that one specific area, and we were blasting this poster from law enforcement, and, um, and I, I got on and did a Facebook Live, I believe, on December 9th, uh, and kind of told everyone, kind of, this is the update, and not even nine days later, less than two weeks later, um, all of a sudden, someone sees a poster, and, and they're a coworker, and they're like, you know what, I know that guy, and so, so there, you didn't even need genealogy. We were doing the genealogy and working our way. But there, you don't always need to go through this entire process. Sometimes just knowing a little bit of information, just knowing where in the country he may have originated from or his family may have originated from, even that allows you to kind of target the message. And then, again, power of the crowd. All these people were like, I know him. And, And once one person recognized him, then they started piecing the story together. And law enforcement did quite a lengthy investigation after what we did, talked to enough people, pieced together the story and in the very end, they found a relative and asked me to uh, have our lab do the DNA confirmation testing. We did that. We used DNA to prove that the relationship was there, but it was identified through a tip. So it's just amazing. You, you never know how these cases will work out. What I like to think about, you know, when I, when I explain this, the way I like to think about it is like, we have this authorum toolkit. It's just a toolkit and it's got lots of different tools in it. Genealogy is a tool, biogeographical, you know, assessment from, from DNA is a tool, all these tools. You just grab whatever tools you need to get the case worked, right? The goal is just to generate enough information to where you can go from evidence to an answer that, that allows law enforcement to move the case forward. So it's been very exciting. We love we love working on, on these cases from all these different angles. We try to catalog these stories on DNA Solve so people can kind of see, like, there's every one of these stories had unique challenges, and they have unique outcomes and, and even the tools that are used, a combination of tools that are used to solve them, they're all different. It, you never know what's gonna happen until you get into it. And, um, and so anyways, it's, 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 been, it's been exciting to be able to help. Um, you know, and, and again, we enjoy our partnership with other organizations like, uh, like NCMEC, which, which themselves then bring in an even bigger toolkit. You know, we have another case that we're doing with NCMEC where, where isotope testing uh, would have been very valuable, but Authram doesn't do isotope testing. And, and because we're working this case with Nick Mick, they found the appropriate person that could do the kind of work necessary to get good information, and, and it, it, was, it was successful. They got some really great information, and that's a case that is not uh, solved, but it is in progress, and, and we're hoping that we'll, we'll we're hoping we'll bring uh, closure to as many of these cases as possible.
0: Definitely, um, I, I got a, a question about Othram. How many? You mentioned your team. I'm just curious how many people
2: work at Othram. That we got we got 20 people so we we're, we're, we're like one of the smaller teams. Yeah it's pretty cool though very very cool. Yeah
0: I guess how did you get into this too? Sorry I guess this is a little bit of an introductory question, but I'm just kind of curious as we go like what gave you the idea to you started this authrum
2: a- a- Yeah so so I, I think I told you earlier like I've always worked on DNA testing about 10 years ago, I was fortunate to be part of the, the wave of folks that brought uh, DNA sequencing new versions of DNA sequencing into the clinic. And, um, you know, 10 years ago, I think people were questioning, could these more powerful ways of doing DNA sequencing ever, ever really have a role in, 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 in diagnostics and in in clinical, um, clinical work, because you can imagine like there's, there's certainly a, a, a divide between I just did some research stuff and I'm, I'm rendering medical information and medical advice. The threshold is a lot higher for technology. And, um, and so I was, I was uh, lucky to be involved. My, my very first startup, we helped uh, build the standards and metrics and performance testing to prove that sequencing could be used in the clinic, but also to help people that are in the clinic adopt the technology and know that if they're using sequencing, they're, they're, they're detecting the, the information if they're supposed to, not detecting information doesn't exist. So we did a lot of that work early on, and um, it's been very enjoyable but uh, over and in my team of 20 people, like some, some of them I'm known for 20 years. some I'm known for 10 years, but they've all, most of them have all been uh, somehow touching some aspect of DNA testing primarily in the medical space. And, you know, at some point we realized that, that success had already happened. Like the, the, the move to bring this to the clinic succeeded and now you can go anywhere and, and, you know, Pretty much even the smallest little local labs even hospitals sometimes even clinics will have their own little mini hardware for sequencing and they can they can answer any question you have about the cancer gene this gene that gene and so the technology it, it made it it arrived and so we were looking we were looking for like where where could we make another impact like you know where where can we make an impact that would be valuable um medicine is very important but there's 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 tons of people doing this kind of testing now and I think forensics is an interesting area because forensics is, is an important field. There's, um, you know, I think I told you on a previous podcast that the, uh, the National Institute of Justice, they call this accumulation of unidentified folks. They call it like a, a silent mass disaster. This accumulation of cold cases, unidentified folks, and they never get identified. I mean, the, the success rates once they're not identified through traditional means are very low. They just aggregate and collect. So there's this incredible need the impact on society is huge. For any one person that's unidentified, there's there must be a crowd of people, not not the least of which is the family and the friends that that want to know who this person was or what happened to them or who might have been involved in a crime committed against them, and and yet where do you go? Like the you know where where what where do you go to get this kind of testing? There's really nowhere to go. So, um, you know, I've always had a fascination with engineering DNA technology, and and so has my team. But we wanted to apply it in an area that was new and, and there was there was a need. It was there's a need, but it's underserved. And I feel like this is this is the area. I think when we started, we ended up built we built the first end-to-end forensic sequencing operation. And you know, this is now uh January 2021. Um, you know, and we started in the end of 18, fall of 18, is 2021 January, and, and we're still the only end-to-end in-house forensic sequencing operation. Um, that can handle the kind of evidence, you know, with the properties that we discussed. So, so I think that tells you there's a need. I, I think there'll be more companies that emerge in this space. As we get the word out, as others get the word out, as law enforcement gets the word out, people will see like, number one, there's a need. Number two, there's a, the, the process could work, right? Maybe a couple of years ago, you're wondering, okay, is the Golden State Killer an anomaly? Maybe you got lucky and that's why you're able to solve it. But at some point you've solved enough of these to where it's not luck anymore, and what I hope in the near future, you know, my goals for 2021 is that it, it transitions from lucky happenstance to to expectation. You should expect that when the traditional forensic technique cannot solve a case, you should expect that you will then pivot to this method. And, and if you don't use this method, then then you know I, I I want I want this to become so broadly used that um that it just it feels irresponsible not to apply the method, right? And, and so that's, that's kind of where we're going. That's why I always tell people like, our, our goal was to come make a difference. And I love every case. Every case we solve is, is a miracle. Like, you know, this, this case that we helped Pecos with, right? She has, uh, she was one of 15 siblings and most of her siblings are still alive. They're in their eighties. And, um, and, you know, while, while the world continued uh, turning and doing its thing, this family was waiting for her they reported her missing as soon as she went away it's not because like you know they didn't report her they reported her missing they never stopped looking for her one of her sisters is an evangelist for nick and you know missing children and everything else like this has affected their entire life carla walker's brother spent 46 years at the same house hoping that one day he would not miss uh, when the cops came to give him an update so these families can't move forward and so we have the technology to make a difference. And there are tons of people, even decades later, that are waiting for an answer. So there's that. But then, then there's the need to not just solve one case or 10, but how do we make this something that everyone can use? And so there's the science, the science magic of trying to work a case. But then the more important question, in my opinion, is how do you, it's an engineering problem, how do you engineer this so you can apply it not to 10 cases, but to 10,000 cases? Or to a hundred thousand cases and that's that's kind of what we're trying to do at Offram. is we want we want to build a platform that would enable anyone to collect the information that is necessary from evidence regardless of whether it's been previously classified as suitable or not and we want to make that information available to law enforcement to agencies that work with law enforcement maybe you're a company of genealogists and you're helping law enforcement make it available to the genealogists we want to build a platform that allows you to rapidly digitize dna get the information you need and help drive an investigation forward. And again, not for 10 cases, but for 10,000 cases. That, that's, that's kind of why we got into this. So I think we can do that. Um, we're gonna need more than one lab and we'll definitely need more than 20 people. So I, uh, I'm, I'm always thrilled when I hear there's a new player in town, which we, 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 we work, um, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but we work for a lot of other labs. We work for other labs, we work for the agencies that work for law enforcement. It's always a law enforcement investigation but sometimes we 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 help people that help law enforcement, and and I love doing it. I I don't want to I don't want to work every case uh, ourselves. I just want to make the technology available so so no case gets left behind, you know, so to speak.
1: And when you're building your team, you have twenty people right now. I I don't know if you started with uh, the same twenty people or if it was just a couple people. But when you're building your team and you're adding new uh new new uh, new new players into the mix, do you? Do you have a certain thing that you tell them? Do you tell them how different it is from anything else that they'll be doing in this field? Do you tell them how much good can come out of this?
2: Yeah, I mean, we're definitely mission driven. I mean, at the end of the day, like, the, you know, a forensic scientist, you know, some of the same people that employ the techniques at Othram, you can go work at a medical diagnostic company, do this at scale, measure, measure cancer genes or something else. And, you know, there, there are easier ways to make a living and, and there are easier ways to make more money. Um, the people that come to Othram um, are here because we're, we're really mission-driven. On, on what I told you, like, you know, it's, it's even more than just the case. It's like the idea that you could impact crime rate, right? Like the idea that if you worked enough of these uh, sex assaults, that you could actually reduce the amount of repeat crime because these folks get caught a lot earlier. I mean, if you're lucky, the the repeat crime rate converges upon zero because eventually, in you know, in the near future, if you commit a crime and you leave DNA, you'll get caught and you won't have the chance to go assault a whole bunch of other people. You know, this case that we did with Siobhan McGinnis, a five-year-old that was raped and murdered. And and it turns out the guy that did it, he's also, you'll be not surprised to know, assaulted and, and, and murdered other people. And so he's been implicated in other crimes. And and the idea that in the future, uh, you won't have serial crime because you can identify and, and stop in the tracks this kind of behavior, I think is, uh, is, is very motivating. Um, the idea that if people know that there's a ten times higher chance that they'll get caught if they assault somebody, um, you know, or that they murder somebody, the idea that that could maybe, at least a few people would maybe think twice before they do go do that. I, I think that's huge. I think people debate like what what motivates people. Is it severity of punishment or is it chance of getting caught? And I think I think chance of getting caught plays a big role, right? People think, oh, I won't get caught. Uh, and so when they start seeing in the news that everyone that's out trying to sexually assault someone is getting caught all of a sudden, um, you have to think that would give some folks pause. So so you know, in the short term, I told you like we love solving a case or helping solve a case. We, we don't really solve cases law enforcement does. but but helping solve a case and bringing answers and comfort to a family, then scaling this from ten to ten thousand, but then even further reaching is like, could you actually impact crime rate? could you make society safer? and and, and that's that's a motivator. I mean, I have a, you know one guy that I brought on. I've I've known him for years, and he's he's worked with me in previous ventures. Not all of them, but a few. And you know he's a he's a wonderful developer. He builds video games, and and I was like you know we we we, we recruited him. We, we went and hunted him down. He was in Austin, a couple hours from here. We went down there and we told him um, you know why why catch bad guys in video games when you can catch them in real life, and and so so it's 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 an amazing thing when you really think about what you get to be part of every day. It's like super exciting. And so, so that's, that's definitely a big part of it is like motivating people on the mission and, and then finding the right kind of people that, um, that appreciate and respect the process because it's a, it's a very tedious and complicated process. Um, when we first got started, we had this DA come through our lab and he was like, you know, I don't care about solving cases. I care about prosecuting cases. And it was a, it was a, it was a really impactful thing that he told us because, you know, solving a case is, it's not the same thing as prosecuting it. And so, solving at all costs, just doing whatever, right? That doesn't work. It's 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 being able to bring information that allows law enforcement to solve it, but do it in a very documented and structured way, so that they they can defend and explain the method. It's just, it just takes a certain personality to do that kind of stuff. And so, as we identify folks, we bring them on board. And I think I think this will be uh, the year of scale for us. Where we're gonna we're gonna get more people, um, and uh, and we're gonna see what we can do to to kind of. Like I said, uh, move towards that transition to to you know hundreds of thousands of cases um, that that may benefit from this kind of work.
0: Is there a, a like sort of a dream case that you would like to take on?
2: I mean, every case is a dream case for us. Our our, our dream case is a case where there's enough DNA evidence for us to do something useful. Um, we've worked cases that are you know kind of more higher profile. Um, and then we've worked cases, you know, we identified, uh, you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something that for me was kind of a dream case, but it's not a case that you would have ever heard of. We, early in our process, we were identifying unknown folks that had died sometimes accidentally decades ago. It was kind of interesting. It's like, we could identify someone, you know, like, like this girl that drowned on the pool, you know, 50 years ago, a hundred years ago, 150 years ago. But we had a case, we had a case that just really stuck with me. It was a guy that died, um, a year ago, he had only died a year before we had gotten his, 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 um, his, uh, his, his evidence. And you'll never hear about this case because the case never went cold. The coroner had heard about what we're doing and she reached out to us and she's like, look, you know, can, can you figure out who he is? We want to get him back to family. It wasn't even a crime. And she sent us within a year, uh, evidence. We took it and figured out who his family was and, and returned him to family. And, and, you know, his, his brother, I believe, um, you know, took custody and um, and you know the story wrapped up kind of without a lot of fanfare or anything. But it was it was it was really for me an amazing thing because this case never went cold. He's never going to be on a true crime show, and that's that's kind of the future that I'm hoping for. Is like you don't have to wait decades. You can start solving a case immediately when when the techniques available to you are not appropriate. And, um, and the idea that you can prevent the case from going cold in the first place, I think is miraculous, miraculous, because the family's not around forever, and you don't want them to suffer forever. And as I said, they can never, they can never begin to heal or move forward until there's an answer. So, you know, why make them wait 50 years when they can wait, you know, a year and then get an answer. And then and then, of course, for the other reason I mentioned is, you know, God forbid that it's a crime, being able to identify um, the responsible parties so that, you know, can kind of cut it off and, and not have it continue. So that that was kind of one of my favorite cases. But it's it was it's on DNA solves. It was a, it was a case out of McHenry County. Um, but it's it's just not a case that you would have read about. And so we 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 work cold cases, but we also work contemporary cases. I mean, if there's a case that cannot be solved using methods available, it's like I said, we, we come with the Othram toolkit and we pull out whatever tool we need to help law enforcement get to where they're going.
1: I have a hypothetical for you. Let's say that this uh, crime was committed, and uh, it involved a robbery, and the perpetrator took these receipts and buried these receipts close to the crime scene, and those receipts were found, I'm just going to say, 15, 16 years later. What If someone brought you that, is, that uh, is it possible to extract DNA from that? Is it possible to make an identification on that?
2: So like DNA from like a paper receipt?
1: Yeah, that that's been that's been partially buried for over a decade.
2: I yeah, I don't know. <laughs> we we've done projects that involve touch DNA, so like objects that have been handled. Um, so we've we've been able to to, to work profiles from that. Um, I just don't know. I mean, when things are exposed to the elements, right? You know, like especially like water, or they've been underground for a while. Um, you know, who, who knows what the condition of the paper would be if stuff had grown on it you know I, I think the risks that you face is that it breaks down over time you know water can can be a powerful uh, solvent and can 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 wash away quite literally any trace of DNA and then um, if stuff grows on it you know that that also makes it hard because as, as the thing you're looking for becomes a small smaller and smaller component of what's in that DNA um, it's harder to tease it out um, but I mean it, you know I I it's possible. I mean, people—it's it, amazing what people can get DNA from these days, and um, and the technology only improves. And so, so it's something that we would certainly consider. But if we didn't feel like we had a good chance of success, we'd say hold on to that receipt, save your receipt. We'll check it in a in a year or two when we have a you know a better method. There's cases right now. You know, autum only been around for you know a handful of years, right? 18 to now. So we have some cases that in the very early days we we said, you know what. I, I don't think we can help you here, hold on to your evidence. And, and at least a few of those cases now um, that I remember, at least it's probably more, but just on my mind, I can think of a few already that we've taken that we've previously said we don't wanna work and we've been able to now work them to completion. So something else to point out is like, this is a very rapidly evolving and rapidly improving uh, process. And it's, I think we're just seeing the beginning of what's possible. That's why I'm saying like, you're not, you're not looking at exceptional stories you're looking at a glimpse of the future where this becomes quite routine. And that's what we're trying to figure out. Like the goal of auth is to speed up the point to which this becomes just a very ordinary routine process of investigation and not, not like a, you know, front page news kind of amazing story. This is how all cases should be processed. If, if uh, other tools uh, that are available are not successful.
0: I love it, David. Thank you so much for, uh, for spending your time and, chatting with us we need to have some kind of regular segment where you you come back on and we uh, we discuss uh case updates or any solves that you uh that you have
2: yeah we'd be happy to we've, we've got something seems like every week or so there's something new on on dna solve so we'd be happy to come back and talk about cases or you know s- speculate on cases that you guys find interesting so i'm always excited to talk about the technology
1: i can't believe how Tim just did the wrap up and, uh, and I just looked down and I can't believe that 51 w- minutes went by. That was riveting. Like I, I, I was riveted. And, and I remember the night that you were on Get Vocal. I think we went extra time on that as well. And, and everyone was still in the chat room. Everyone was still very uh, active and, and they were buzzing afterward, too. So, uh, you know, you're doing something right when you're getting such a good reaction. And really, you could talk about this like you said. You could talk about it for hours. We could listen for hours.
2: I don't know. I think, I think eventually I will uh, bore you to death with all the details. (laughs) Great to talk about it. I think, you know, getting the word out is important as part of that process. As people hear about it, um, I think every time someone listens to your podcast, uh, there's, there's a chance that one extra person will think about a case that they've been working on and say, you know what, this could help me. And so I think, I think it's important to keep talking about it. I think the examples and the stories are just critical because you know someone else will have a story that resembles the details of a case that we or someone else has have brought light to and it'll it'll trigger them to then want to do the same for their case and that's that's the goal is get the word out show people what's possible you know and 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 generalize this so that it has broad acceptance <laughs>